0: And this is DataCast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science.
1: Hi, listeners. This is DataCast, where I hold long-form and in-depth conversation with data practitioners to unpack the narrative journeys of their career. My guest today is Mars Lan, the co-founder and CTO of Metaphor Data a startup that offers a modern metadata platform to solve many complex organizational data challenges, such as data discovery and data governance. He also co-created the popular open-source project, data Hub while working as a tech lead of the metadata team at LinkedIn. Mars received his PhD in computer science from the University of California Los Angeles. So Mars, glad to have you on the show.
2: Hi, uh, glad to be here, thanks for having me, yeah.
1: So let's start our conversation by discussing a bit about your educational background. So you got both your bachelor and master's degrees in computer system engineering at the University of Auckland back in New Zealand, if I'm correct. Could you mind going over your overall uh, educational experience there?
2: Uh, sure. You're completely right. The University of Auckland is in New Zealand. That's where I grew up. Yeah, I did a, what's called a computer system engineering degree over there which is kind of a cross between your traditional EE, electrical and electronics engineering, and a bit of computer science. So I got exposure to both of them uh, throughout my uh, degrees there, study there. And the New Zealand education system is pretty solid. Uh, say it, it shows both a good balance between theoretical work and you know, practical work. Actually, in fact, in order to graduate, you're required to take on 500 hours of practical work. Think of it uh, as internships and whatnot. Before you graduate, that's actually part of the graduation requirement. So I certainly enjoy my study there. And I feel like I learned a very solid understanding in the fundamentals of electrical engineering as well as computer science.
1: I'm just curious, on that note, why did you decide to study engineering and computer science at the first place?
2: When I was young, I, I'm very much into computer and computer-related stuff in electronics and all that. So naturally, that was kind of an easy choice for me. I, I've always wanted to do that. I think the computer science degree over there was a little bit not as solid as the engineering degree. And that's why I feel like I'll, I'll probably learn more by going into engineering school and study there.
1: Perfect. Thanks for sharing that. And so after you finished your undergrad, you apply for a PhD program in the US and you get into UCLA. I think you, you start out as a master's student, right? And then you move on into become a PhD student, you know, kind of reflecting on your overall time there. How could you describe your overall academic experience at UCLA?
0: So it
2: was actually quite different, to be honest. I remember the first time when I came to the U.S., and it was just a very first class, this undergrad class in algorithm, actually. And and that was the class I attended because I didn't actually went through that particular course when uh, doing my study. And well, I was shocked by how vocal the students were in the U.S. I think I remember when the professor asked a question, like everybody's trying to raise their hand and try to answer. And I feel like, in that very moment, I feel like I was the dumbest person in the room. Like, I haven't even fully comprehended the question. Then, and everybody was trying to answer already. But then I think that's part of the U.S. education. It was just trying to teach people to be, you know, not afraid of voicing their opinion, even if they're not sure about it, right? Mm-hmm. And then later on, I realized that was actually the case. And most people who raised their hand, actually did not know the right answer. They were just trying to eager to express themselves. But I do feel like that's a strength in the U.S. education system is to build up people with characters and able to have a, you know, always voice their opinions and have a constructive conversation with other people. And UCLA is top-notch in terms of their programs and whatnot. So it was a great experience over there. I learned so much. And then even a the graduate program, throughout that program, I was, you know, working a couple of internships during summers and actually also you know, working in my professor's startup as well as part of that experience as well. So so I think those opportunities are, are much harder to come by outside of the U.S., in my opinion, uh, whereas in the U.S. is actually very common, yeah, especially in good universities.
1: I see. I know that you study CS, but was there any specialization that you focus on for your graduate degree?
2: So my professor, Professor Sade, he actually started off in the area of algorithm and, you know, electronics routings and PCB routing and that sort of stuff, right? That sort of area. But then he quickly moved into a new area. This is actually very new at the time, which is applying computer science to uh, healthcare related issues, trying to challenge a lot of the healthcare related problem through remote monitoring and machine learnings and whatnot. So that's kind of the focus area I was in. And at the time it was called wildlife health. Um, mm-hmm. So that, I think now it's renamed to eHealth. So that's kind of the area that I, I was specializing.
1: Yeah, thank you for sharing that context. And I think that's a pretty nice way for us to kind of transition a conversation to more some of the research project that you work on as a PhD student. And you know, I was looking up a little bit some of the work that you've done on your Google Scholar profile. And I think one of the earliest papers that you have written during your PhD is like a project that built a robust and scalable lane departure warning system for smartphones. So can you go over the details of this work?
2: Sure. This was an actually very early days of you know smartphones. Actually, this was part of the class project where I was working on was trying to try essentially see if we can add a useful application to smartphone. And then the application I happened to chose at the time was to this lane departure system. So, and you know a lot of luxury cars had that, and probably many back then, right? And then now probably every a lot of standard cars even have that feature where if people are dozing off at their wheel and then they start drifting off their lane without indicating their indicator, you either get a vibration on the wheel or you get beepings and that some sort of warning signal telling you, trying to wake you up. And I was trying to implement that entire system on the very first Android phone. This is HTC, I forgot the name of it, but the very first Android phone, which was obviously very, very underpowered (laughs) for this sort of thing. But that was also where the challenge is. How do you implement a, a good image processing algorithms are a very limited resource
1: mm, yeah that's really interesting that you work with some early phase of this new technology another paper that you work on is called Smartphone, an automatic for detection system to help prevent the elderly from failing can you walk through sort of the motivation and the empirical work done here
2: Sure, certainly. Actually, in fact, a lot of these things with today's technology seems very commonplace, right? For example, I think Apple Watch has some sort of full detection already. So, but back then, none of those things exist, right? So there's no wearable tech or anything like that. So what happens is is essentially build this walking cane with you know, sensors, you know, especially XR meters and whatnot, built into the cane itself. And then the idea is using that cane to be able to detect when an elderly Actually, fall in an uncontrollable fashion, essentially. So, once again, it, applying, like I said, the theme was always about how do we apply both electronics and computer software into health related challenges. And this particular one was to do with geriatric patients. And this is the early days as well for machine learning. So, mm-hmm. you know, back then, people are not doing deep neural nets or anything like that, right? So, so, the machine learning algorithm was a lot easier back then in order to implement something like this. And smartphone was. Essentially, one of those categories where we essentially try to build a robust system where we can detect when someone actually falls uh, through the sensors in the can.
1: Yeah, very, very cool. And I love like, the purpose of the system, which is really a benefit for, for society. And toast and of PhD, you work on a system called Wanda, which is an end to end remote health monitoring and analytic system designed for hurt failure patients. Can you discuss the design and implementation of the system?
2: Once again, similar theme here, but, but in this particular case, we were applying sensory data from essentially ECG, KG sort of data, and then try to analyze the data to see if we can detect early onset of heart failure, which still is uh, one of the biggest reason that, you know, biggest killer out there right now essentially right so and then we were working with I believe this is data from uk nih and, and whatnot so, so it's trying to use those data and then some real patient data and try to set up remote monitoring to be able to real-time monitor the incoming stream of data and then being able to detect these early uns- uh, patterns of onset of car failure.
1: i see throughout this different work that you work on your phd has any of the system being implemented in the real world and I'm curious. Yeah. About
2: in, in fact, Wanda, I believe I was involved during my PhD process, but so I, I didn't get involved after I graduated. But I do believe there was actually a startup that mm-hmm. was formed after, uh, based on this particular idea. I'm not following closely to that startup, but I do know a couple of students from the lab who actually end up working there and you know working with uh, real patients, and mostly in Europe, I believe, not in the US. But yeah.
1: Yeah. Thanks for sharing that context. It's really cool that you got a chance to clarify, like at least contribute the initial. Ideas and effort into some of this novel research project that later turn on industry applications. Right? You kind of mentioned a little bit that you also you know work on a couple internship during your time at PhD, and more specifically, you completed two software engineering internship with Google. What were some of the valuable lesson that you learned from such internship experience?
2: I think for people who studying computer science is almost a given. I think computer science by its own very nature is there's a lot of practical application to it. And, you know, what's being studied, you know, in the field of academia very quickly get applied into industry. So having that industry experience is critical for even for people who do not intend to work in industry and stay in academia. I think having that exposure, understanding, you know, what's possible and what's being, you know, explored out there. And had that take that feedback into driving the actual research directions and whatnot is super valuable. So that was kind of my experience with interning at Google. And obviously Google is one of the best company to work at. So I was super excited when I uh, went interning there. The first internship was actually in uh, Google LA, um, mm-hmm. back then it north in Santa Monica, uh, where they have the offices there. And then the second one is actually in the headquarters, Mountain View. So both experience was fantastic. I mean, Google is really top notch in that sense. You, you know, Not only do you get exposure to how the best tech company will work and all that, but you also surround yourself with very, very smart people, no doubt. The joke of the day was you always have this imposter syndrome, right? (laughs) When you're at Google, it doesn't matter how long you work there. Every now and then you just feel like, oh, I don't really belong here. (laughs) Everybody else is way so much smarter than I am. But that's how you sort of drive yourself, right? By surrounding yourself with very smart people, you essentially improve yourself through the process as well and hopefully become one of them too
1: That's all. yeah for sure and it's another point is i feel like writing code university versus writing code in industry is probably very different and i'm curious when you actually work at google did you pick up any um, relevant best practice in engineering yeah if so can you tell a bit about your journey of learning to become a more practical programmer i suppose
2: yeah, absolutely, right? I mean, uh, school doesn't teach you all these skills, right? I mean, you kind of have to learn them from industry. And then it's a very different set of skill if you think about in academia, most of the time, you know, you sort of work along, right? Mm-hmm. And then the goal is always to try to build out something quick and prove a point and, you know, verify something without too concerned about scalability and practicality, right? On the other end, unless you happen to work in that field of study, right? Otherwise, most of the time it's about, hey, can we build up, you know, quick prototype and take, you know, sort of research to the next level? But when it comes to working industry, you know, software engineering is kind of a groove sport. If you think about it, very few people is able to do everything on their own, right? They have to collaborate with other people. So a lot of time, the emphasis is more on how do you write code that is maintainable over the long time, right? Not necessarily like being able to quickly turn out things. There's certainly places for that as well, but for anything that is serious with you know, production grade in mind, that is obviously not. The aim is to make sure the code is super maintainable. And this is especially true in huge tech company like Google, Facebook, you know, Microsoft, etc. Where the goal is to make sure that if you leave the team tomorrow, right, mm-hmm. someone else should be able to step in and quickly pick it up and be able to uh, just carry on with the work. And that basically means there's certain requirements on the quality, you know, in terms of not just the code, but, you know, the documentation, best practice, like you mentioned and all that uh, Mm -hmm. has to be followed throughout the company, right? And then when it comes to research, generally that is considered impotence for speed of execution, right? (laughs) A lot of times it's like, okay, that's okay. I mean, I'm going to be the same person who's looking at this code, you know, three months, six months in the future. So in order to quickly churn out things, sometimes I'll sacrifice on some of those points. Yeah. Whereas in real industry, that is a huge no-no. Yeah. Even for startup, right? I'll say. Even for startup, yes, you know, people are trying to be scrappy and all that. But but at the same time, there is still a certain bar that needs to be held. You right? in my company, for example, right, we will not tolerate code that are you know completely below the bar, right? Just for the sake of shipping things, uh, because most of the time these are essentially debt that you have to pay back in the future, and then when you pay back, you pay back with interest too, right? So. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah, I think you're probably about not just about writing production-ready code, but you need to make it maintainable by, you know, having documentation, making sure that co- co-workers can understand what's being written and have better context of it. And I think that's going to be really relevant later on as we talk about metaphor because that data documentation is like very similar thread as well. Stepping back into this part of your career, you finished your PhD at UCLA. And I guess you' in love with Google, so you spend the next four years as a software engineer there, where you work on bringing the PHP onto Google App Engine, and then you also work on enabling Gbot personalization. Would you mind discussing some of the engineering challenges associated with these projects?
2: Sure. The first part, like you mentioned, the first part of my career at Google was focusing on a specific product called Google App Engine. This was kind of the marquee product for Google uh, GCP, Google Cloud Platform in the early days. That was actually one of the key revenue drivers for them as well. The entire snapshot was sort of built on top of it. So Google App Engine, you can think of it as essentially serverless, as how people generally call it nowadays. The developer only need to focus on the particular part of the application logic without worrying about scaling the infrastructure, You know all the security consideration around it and all these other things, right? It's just taken care of by the infrastructure itself. Sometimes it's called function as a service even, right? Or So that's kind of where the stuff that I'm working on was specifically enabling PHP to run in Google Cloud, uh, App Engine, right? Mm-hmm. And this was an interesting project in the sense of, you know, Back then, probably even still true today, PHP is still one of the most popular languages on the web. <laughs> you know, despite there's a lot of comments around the quality of it and whatnot, it is still one of the most popular languages out there. And having PHP support was actually one of the, actually the top feature requests from the developer at the time I joined, and they never had an opportunity to work on it. One of the reasons was because you know PHP, for better or for worse, is inherently a little bit insecure. Right? There's a lot of security issue around the language and various frameworks around it. And then trying to run something like that inside of Google is actually a huge red flag, as far as a lot of people are concerned. <laughs> so one of the biggest challenges there was to make sure how do we have a good sandbox environment where we're able to run these things safely. And once again, this is prior to Docker was even uh, you know being popularized or anything like that. So trying to build, you know, to a great extent, was kind of building a mini version of Docker inside Google App Engine to make sure that you can still run the application freely without worrying about what if there's any you know issue, any security issue to do with the runtime itself and whatnot. Yeah. So that was the first project. Yeah, and then the second project. Like you mentioned as well, it's personalization for Google Keyboard, abbreviated as Gboard. Uh, this is actually the standard keyboard on Android. So if you have Android, that's probably uh, something you're very familiar with. So the idea was, how do you help suggest, you know, essentially being sort of doing this predictive typing on Gboard based on the person's personalized context? Mm-hmm. Right? So, so think of it as we essentially build a small search engine within, on your device that basically index all your uh, Gmail and contacts information and whatnot. So when you type, you know, we'll make sure we influence and bias the, the language model in such a way that's similar to how you normally type in your emails or when you try to type in you know, people's name and whatnot, it's able to smartly auto complete that. It doesn't matter whether it's a common name or not it's an interesting challenge in that sense, right? Because of, you know, privacy concern, right? People will not feel very comfortable uploading all their data to the cloud. And also they will feel like, you know, if, if your device is out of internet connections and whatnot, I want to make sure that you can still perform all these, you know, predictive typing when that's the case. So because of that, everything has to be done on the device itself, which is very resource constrained, obviously. So how do you make sure that you can do it and when you do all your trainings and whatnot, make sure you do it in such a way that you do not Bog down the device, but then still provide the best possible experience to the user.
1: I see. For both of these projects, you work on Google. The focus has been really on building infrastructure to enable reliable and efficient performance of the Google engine and the bot right? And then I'm sure your like engineering power is going kind to of definitely improve a lot just from being at the team that build the system for the end users. You spent about four years at Google, and in 2017, you joined LinkedIn. To lead an engineering team that builds the core metadata infrastructure for the entire organization. Why did you decide to make this career transition?
2: At this time, I was, you know, looking at opportunities available, uh, you know, outside of Google. I feel like I was there, you know, with my intention. All that, you know, it was about six calendar years in total <laughs> at Google. So I feel like I'm ready to move on to something else, different environment, different kind of challenges. So I looked around and LinkedIn. At the time, present a very interesting opportunity where they just started to explore the field of metadata, and then they, they literally just formed the new metadata team with a couple of engineers, and then they need they're looking for a tech lead to lead the team. So when I saw the opportunity, I said, "Hey, this is very interesting. It's an opportunity for me to sort of both step out on my career, but also to hold my leadership, you know, experience where it's much harder to do at Google as kind of a, just a senior." software engineer, right? So that's why I sort of jump on that opportunity. I didn't actually have much of a data background at the time, right? I mean, I did some machine learnings and whatnot, but it's not quite the same as, you know, uh, what people talk about today, right? Mm-hmm. So I was more of an infrared guy, so to speak, and mostly focusing on cloud related stuff at the time. So I say, okay, this still, it's kind of a good cross. I'm very interested in data. I the data is the future. But I don't feel like I want to become just a pure data scientist. That's not my background or by training in any way. So mm-hmm. I want to have some exposure to that, uh, but also being able to bring my own personal experience and expertise to the field. And then I feel like this opportunity was a good one because of the marrying of the two fields. So yeah, that's why I decided to change from uh, Google to LinkedIn to join the team and lead the team.
1: I see. Yeah. So like given you interest interested in data and you want to opportunity opportunities like marry both that interest with your... Are- expertise mm-hmm. in infrastructure engineering. And I also like the first part manager, which is you want to level up your career and take over like a leadership position, right? To
2: mm-hmm.
1: not just an, an IC engineer, we want to be at a high level as well. Now, so at LinkedIn, you have designed and developed their generalized metadata search and discovery tool called data. Hub. I think it was a blog post about back in August, 2019. And then this product later was open source in 2020. Would you mind briefly explaining the motivations behind the creation of Data Hub?
2: So Data Hub, there's actually a very interesting story behind it. When I first joined LinkedIn, like I mentioned at the time, they said, hey, look, we're trying to build this next generation of metadata infrastructure. And we have a t- new team. Would you like to come and lead us? That's how they sold me, right? And when I joined the team, literally one month after I joined the team, the order came from the top, say, hey, look, drop everything you work on. There's only one thing that matters to the whole data, the greater data team, which is GDPR, right? Mm-hmm. So this is like literally a year and a half away from the GDPR enforcement. And then everybody start panicking and say, well, what are we gonna do? <laughs> so, you know, the original project was sold on, sort of obviously get sidelined as that. And then the focus is on like, how do we build an infrastructure and system to solve LinkedIn GDPR problem. And Data Hub was essentially born out of that, so to speak. And at the time, we had something called, the team had a legacy product called Warehouse, uh, which was also incidentally open source, didn't really get a whole lot of traction, but it it was open source. And then it was a pure data catalog. And then it's probably one of its very first kind in this particular area. And the team was essentially taking that and say, okay, how do we take that, which is mostly just an app, and then scale it into an actual infrastructure that can help enforce GDPR compliance at LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And to a great extent, we re rolled the whole system from the ground up, actually multiple times. And Data Hub was kind of the version three of that. And eventually, what we did is we followed the best, you know, sort of the consumer internet practices, right, where you sort of having this, you know, three tier systems and the backends being microservices and then, you know, front end being mostly stateless, sort of designed to build up this infrastructure. And then we were able to essentially support both the original search and discovery use case, as well as the new compliance use case using the same platform. So at the end of the GDPR, we realized, hey, look, what we build is really a platform that is essentially gathering and organizing metadata and then use this platform to open up additional use cases to solve for the company. And that's when Data DataHub was essentially uh, born. And then we decided, hey, this is super cool. We should uh, open source it to the rest of the world. And other people will find it useful too. And that led to the open source of Data Hub.
1: I see. Yeah. It's one hour of a specific request on GDPR. and then as you iterate and keep improving the engineering backbone and meet event more use cases you see like the potential individual needs for it right and then that's the
0: yeah, and,
2: and in fact we did actually extend it to many other use cases in my subsequent blog post I list quite a few of them uh, but we also work with a team very closely inside of LinkedIn that builds the machine learning infrastructure. And then they build the entire machine learning dev ops, if you will, on top of Data Hub inside of LinkedIn, right? Which basically help people to manage a lifecycle of models, features, and whatnot. That entire system, you know, is essentially metadata at the end of the day that's driving all these various components. And that builds on top of the data hub platform. And we also actually, in fact, LinkedIn internally has its own proprietary BI. Software, if you will, mm-hmm. that entire BI software was also migrated onto Data Hub as a result of it. So we are able to link the metadata between all the dashboards as well as mm-hmm. the actual data set. Um, and there's a few other use cases like that inside of LinkedIn. When the time I, I left, I think we had work with probably 20 different teams across uh, the company, and there's like 40 different projects that that will sort of depends on Data Hub one way or the other. So it did actually end up becoming a, a cornerstone. For LinkedIn's
1: data ecosystem. Very interesting. I touched on that point a bit later on, but quickly I just want to look into the architecture of DataHub. So I was reading the blog post, original blog post of DataHub back in 2019, and it was section on the generalized metadata architecture. And at the high level, DataHub is designed to address some of the key scalability challenges coming in four different forms, modeling, ingestion, serving, and indexing. So, can you dissect the architecture of data to meet these challenges for the uninitiated?
2: Uh, sure so i'll start with the modeling first which is a very interesting problem that most of data practitioners can relate to right modeling is always a hard problem it's not and then there are some best practices that people follow and all that but you know over time these things evolve and it's never a static thing you keep evolving your model over time so Think of metadata the same as well, right? The system we're trying to build is a generalized system. What that means is it should be able to take on any metadata that you throw at it, so to speak, right? So in order to add a new type of metadata or modify an existing type of metadata, the actual work involved in there should be minimal, right? In the ideal world, someone should be able to just say, hey, look, I want to just like a table, right? I want to add a column and then magically, boom, everything just work, right? And for table, that's not super hard because, you know, that's how table are are designed for is to be able to expand with columns and whatnot. In this particular case, the reason why it's much harder is because there's a bunch of things associated with the additional metadata, right? It's not just a matter of storing the metadata. You want to be able to index them in such a way. And then you also want to be able to serve them back to the user through a proper API. So to a great extent, a lot of these things, you can think of it as a bunch of code generator. Like when you start with your model, you should be able to press the button or run command, and then your entire infrastructure get generated out of the model. That's kind of the goal of Data Hub. I cannot claim that we have achieved 100%, but there is actually a big part of it that we have managed to do. And then we brought down the cost of bringing any additional metadata to such a low point, and that's why we were able to onboard a lot of people, despite having not a huge team at LinkedIn. That's kind of, in a nutshell, where we touch on the modeling side of the story. Right. And data Hub, for better or for worse, chose a language that's very linking specific. It's called Pegasus. as uh, the, the data modeling language. It is an open source thing, but, you know, it's not a super popular modeling language out there. But inside of LinkedIn, that's kind of the standard language that everybody follows. Think of it as like Photobab to Google. So, sort of, it's the same sort of relationship, essentially. So that was the language chosen. And essentially, think of it as kind of like an Avro++ plus plus language. Mm-hmm. Um, where you essentially write these Pegasus file. And then we take that and then use that to generate the storage engine as well as the index engine, as well as the serving engine, so to speak.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I see. So the modeling is the fundamentals calling. You so saw first the ingestion serving indexing has the downstream priorities. right?
2: Yeah, exactly. So... Because this is a transactional system, right? There's a transactional side of the system where you have to serve API core and you have applications standing on top of it as well. So it's not enough to just say, hey, look, now the table has three more columns, right? You have to actually be able to also communicate that fact to the user and then being able to, that user, modify those things through the APIs.
1: I see, yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing the details, the context of the architecture. And going back to your earlier point about how Data Hub become more widespread within LinkedIn and work within these different tools and be a cornerstone of the data ecosystem, right? You know, and even afterwards, when it's been open source, generally like finding enthusiastic and and passionate contributors is challenging for any open source project. So what are some of the hurdles that your team have to overcome in order to find some of the early adopters internally at LinkedIn and then externally by the open source community later on?
2: yeah so start was internal and i think we were when gdpr hit a lot of people feel like oh my god this is like the worst thing ever right um, you know let's face it most engineers won't get super excited about working on compliance related stuff right? they'll <laughs> we'll probably be more interested in building new features and then you know building products and you know user facing things and all that but then it was actually a blessing in disguise right so Prior to me joining the team, the team has, like I mentioned, they had warehouse and then they tried really hard to go to various teams and say, hey, look, do you guys want to integrate? Do you want to bring your metadata into warehouse so we make it searchable and all that, right? And then that conversation generally doesn't go out very well because to most infrastructure team, this is not their top priority, right? You know, they say, okay, sure, you know, we yeah, we want to make sure that our user have a good experience, but like there's more pressing need currently, right? We well, want to make sure the infrastructure scale and up and running and all that. So it has always been an uphill battle for internal adoption, so to speak. But when GDPR hit, it was the complete opposite, right? Because the order came from the upper management, was like every team has to work with the metadata team in order to be GDPR compliant, right? So now it's the exact opposite. Everybody come and say, "Hey, how do we integrate with you?" Rather than you know us going to bag around and see if anyone will help us. So through that process, we were able to establish essentially think of it as a pipeline of shipping all these metadata across multiple systems into us, mm-hmm. right? And once you establish the pipeline, it's very, very easy to add additional stuff on top of it. Right? Because people say, okay, well, you need three more pieces of information. Okay, let me send that over, right? I just easily add to the existing pipeline to do that. And that basically helped us to form this virtual cycle where we say, hey, look, now we can, we're bringing some B minimum metadata in order to solve GDPR, but now we can start bringing in richer metadata to solve other use cases. And the cost of doing that is so low for the other teams. Generally, they'll just be okay with it. And then because of that whole process, we were able to get a lot of internal adoption. And then once you have the momentum, when the momentum is with you, now everybody starts looking at this and, hey, this is very useful because you have certain things, for example, our indexing pipelines and whatnot. People are like, oh, we need that for our other internal apps. We don't want to build that ourselves. We don't want to maintain that ourselves. Can we just piggyback on top of you? So, so literally, the team at its peak has about 16 engineers, but we have so many backlog items that we essentially have to say no to some of the customers. Hey, look, we cannot onboard you this quarter because we got way too many people waiting, so to speak. I think you have to sort of hit that critical mass in order to really get the world running. But before that, it was hard. And I think GDPR definitely helped us to tip over that hurdle internally. Right? Mm-hmm. So externally is an interesting scenario, we never, you know, open source is kind of, for most full-time engineer working in the company, open source is kind of a side gig always, right? It's always a side project, side gigs. never going to be their main bread and butter. So for us, we never really tried super hard to push for external adoption, right? Mm -hmm. It was mostly saying, just coming out of the goodwill, of a couple of engineers who are interested in doing open source. And we were able to convince the upper management to allocate a certain amount of our team's resources into open source. So at least we were able to you know, help resolve open source issue, run regular town hall and, you know, make sure the documentation, external documentation are great and all that. And then upper management agreed that was a good idea specifically for the LinkedIn brand building purpose. And yeah. um, So once we had that sort of agreement and it helps to foster the open source project, right, because we can actually literally allocate people to work on certain part of the open source without this whole thing being kind of a charity run system, right? So so that's how we able to get the open source system running. And then that's how actually Data Hub became the the most popular open source project in this particular area, right? Because we were able to, you know, leverage some of the LinkedIn resource brandings and whatnot and be able to push for
1: it. I see. So you said that upper management one invest a little bit on having engineering, a few engineers work on open source version for the purpose of branding. And then because of LinkedIn brand you know, data app got adopted by a few of the enterprise later on. And then that's why, you know, it become more popular within the data discovery, data search group, right?
2: Yeah. And there's a very good book that talks about open source
0: communities.
2: And the name of the book is Working in Public, right? Yeah. So this particular book talks about, you know, the whole open source models and whatnot. And I think for this particular kind of project, actually, in fact, if you think about it for most you know, open source project coming out of companies and whatnot, generally it falls into what's called a spectator model, which is essentially saying that there will be a small group of people, generally the original company, that's contributing majority of the thing into the open source. Everybody else is mostly a user and occasional bug fixer and whatnot. There's obviously exception to that, right? There's certain open source really take on its own life and whatnot. But most of the project, and especially in this particular area, and there's a couple of them, right? Coming from this, one come from Netflix, one come from Airbnbs and whatnot. So all of these things, they tend to be sort of spectator based. So if the originating company is not willing to put in any resource to driving it, the project generally is very, very hard to take off the ground. And then until the project really get into kind of a foundation where, okay, now everybody's sort of equal, right? It's no longer, you know, LinkedIn's own project. It's no longer, you know, Netflix's own projects and whatnot. Then the open source had a chance to really take on this life of its own and grow organically. Before that, you know, it's essentially someone, some team will have to really push for it in order for it to move forward.
1: Yeah. yeah thanks for yeah, providing that perspective, the details on how... I guess, internal open source in, in big company mature throughout the um, you know, their life cycle. Mm-hmm. Since November 2020, you have been the CTO of Metaphor Data, a startup that you co-founded with Padu, Gunnam, and Sevi Adebayo. So can you share the story behind the founding of the company?
2: So when we open source Data Hub, and by the way, Padu was the, manager of the team. I was the tech lead of the team. Right? So both of us worked together very closely for the better part of the past three, four years, essentially. And when we open sourced the project, we obviously got a lot of interest from the industry. And then we were like, okay, there's probably something to it, right? We feel like, oh, this is useful beyond LinkedIn, right? Which is the first, we already know this is super useful inside of LinkedIn. But then the question is, can this be useful in general, right? Beyond LinkedIn? And what kind of, does it have to be like huge company, right? Or because if it's huge tech company, there's only a handful of them, right? So is it generally useful even for like mid-sized companies or, or even growth stage startup? Right? And open source help us validate that point. And then it also help us to put ourselves on the radar, right, uh, out there. As soon as we open source a project, there's a couple of VCs essentially start chasing after us and say, hey, when do you want to you know, leave LinkedIn and start a company around it, right? And Jason Horowitz, A16Z was one of those companies, the elite companies that have been chatting with us pretty early on. But at the time, you know, I feel like I don't want to start a company just because other people want to invest in. That would be the wrong reason to start a company. Right? You want to start a company and then you put your next, you know, you know, five, 10 years of life to this thing. You better make sure that it is something that you really want to do, not because just because someone else want to invest in you and yeah. um, so Purdue and I we did a lot of research we talked to you know nearly 100 people data practitioners and data leaders in the industry from all different companies you know trying to answer essentially three questions right first of all you know is this a problem that they have right at their scale essentially the second question is there a product out there that solved that problem for them very, very well right and then the third question is are we confident that we can build that product to solve that problem for them right? and only until we get you know, conviction in all three points. Do we feel like okay, now it's a good time to start a company? So that's when you know, end of twenty twenty. That's when we decided it's time for us to leave LinkedIn and take this to the next level and start a company around it.
1: I see. Three questions: this Is a problem that they have? Is there a product out there that exists to solve the problem? And are you confident that your team is capable of solving it? Right. I guess, yeah. like, at what part that you felt you like believe that you know you can answer this. You know, what are some short answers? <laughs>
2: <All> <laughs> so, so I will backward, right? Uh, the last question is actually the easiest to answer. We, from very early on, we, we knew that we have the right team to build it because we built it for LinkedIn and we were one of the very first team in the industry to build this, to, to be a solution like this. So we feel like we are somewhat qualified for that, right? Yeah. The second question was also reasonably easy to answer, right? There are certain products out there in the market you know, you do your research and talk to people, you realize that they are not really solving the problem. And, and we can get into the details of that later. But that was also reasonably easy to answer. The first one is a little bit tricky, actually. And then this, you know, I don't know if your audience have, uh, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs and whatnot, but if they do, the, this is actually the part that's also super interesting. There's a book called The Mom Test, mm. um, yeah. which I would recommend to pretty much every entrepreneur who want to start a company around it. The gist of the book is essentially saying that when you go and ask your mom any dumb startup idea, she will say, yes, it's the greatest idea ever. <laughs> so trying to get that out of people is actually extremely hard, especially when they know your intrinsic motivation. Right? People, most of the time, they'll try to be polite and not tell you the truth. Right? Mm-hmm. When you ask them, is this the right, you know, do you have a problem like this? Right? A lot of times they will just say yes. Right? Would you pay for a problem like this? Well, Sure, I mean, it's hypothetical, right? It's not really me paying it. So when you ask those hypothetical questions to people, a lot of time you will not get the real answer. You just get the answer that you want. To really suss that out, asking people is kind of the wrong way to do it. And I think open source was actually a great way to evaluate that, right? Because you put the open source project out there, someone pick it up, someone spend considerable amount of engineering effort to adopt it into this, their company. That ultimately means there's value, right? Who would do that if that there's no value? right I mean, in the company setting, you know, the manager will not allow people to do something like that, right? It's completely not a value-add to the company. So, having open source project and seeing adoption of open source project is actually a pretty good way of assessing whether this is a real pain point that people are trying to solve and whether there's actual value behind solving this pain point.
0: Yeah,
1: thanks for sharing that context. That's a really unique, you know. I think that's a very insightful point that you mentioned about like how open source can serve as a, let's say a proxy for measuring, you know, validate customer needs, right? I guess just another point is what is behind the name Metaphor?
0: Well, we
2: picked the company name. It was, you know, like people say right, the hardest thing in computer science is, is choosing name, right? And then it's choosing company name is certainly up there as well, along with that. So we have many different ideas and all that, but we always wanted to be somewhat related to metadata because that's what we feel like is the future that we're trying to build. And then I think metaphor obviously starts with meta, so there's that relationship there. But then if you think about it, what is data anyway, right? Data, to a great extent, is trying to tell you a story or someone who's trying to use data to tell a story at the end of the day, trying to achieve some business goal and whatnot, right? Use through data. So to a great extent, it is essentially using data as a metaphor for an actual goal, right? Whether it's business and whatnot, right? So I think that the name metaphor is, you know, refraction in that sense, and then relevant. So yeah, eventually we picked that. And one other consideration while we're picking name was the availability of the domain, right? Because we all know there's a lot of squatter on the internet taking <laughs> up all the common words and us. So obviously, metaphor.com is not available, so we're not able to get it. But metaphor.io, we were able to acquire it uh, with a fairly reasonable price. So we decided <laughs> to go with that, yeah. Of course, yeah. it's already registered by someone as well, but the person was uh, happy to part it with uh, reasonable. Amount of money. So that's how we got it.
1: Yeah, I love that anecdote for sure, how data can serve as a metaphor for insights and decisions. Now, let's talk about the technical problems of the company that's trying to solve. So, Metaphor provides a modern metadata platform that serves as a system record for any organization's data ecosystem. More specifically, it solves the data discovery and understandability problems by combining technical, business, and behavioral metadata. So, can you share how the platform works to accomplish such a task?
2: Sure. I'll break the time into several components of it, right? So, there is obviously the platform, like you mentioned upfront. But what is the platform, right? The platform, in a nutshell, is gathering metadata from various sources, right? And then essentially turn those metadata into kind of a standardized form, if you will, and then serve that thing through an API, right? Ultimately. So I'll repeat that again. It's gathering metadata from various sources and then transform them into some sort of standardized form and then eventually serve it for your downstream use cases. Mm. What does that sound like to you? Can you think of another thing that works like that in data?
1: Gathering data from multiple sources and transforming in a way to be standardized to serve for downstream use cases
2: does that ring a bell? Does that sound familiar in data? If it does, that's what you, all you do with data, right? If you think about it, yeah. the data warehouse is exactly that, right? That you, awesome. you try to get data from various different sources, Salesforce, MPP, whatever, right? You get all these data from transactional online transaction database. You put it into tables inside a data warehouse, right? That process essentially standardizing the data. right? Okay. And then eventually, once you have those in this standardized servable form, you serve for the downstream use cases, whether it's computing the metrics, you know, or doing machine learning or whatnot. Right? So essentially, the metadata platform, if you think about it, is not very different from the data platform. That's, the angle is essentially the same. So anything that you can think of that re- require you to have a good data stack, you know, you can apply all of that into the metadata stack as well. There's no difference. The only difference is what's in the bits of bytes, right? In this particular case, it's metadata rather than you know your product purchase, your subscriptions and all that, right? It's just the content of data is different. But then in this particular case, it's also different in the sense that what the use case you're trying to serve is not pure analytical use case, right? Actually, in fact, the thing you're trying to serve most of the time is kind of a more like an online transactional use case, right? When someone searches, a data set or trying to search a column or search a comment, you know, descriptions and whatnot, or search the lineage and all that, they expect to get those answers immediately, right? They're not going to work around Twitter or some work, wait two, one, two minutes until the answer spit out, right? So that is the fundamental difference between kind of a metadata platform versus a data platform, okay? So that's the first piece. And then that also entails, if you think about, I'm taking the analogy a little bit further, right? you probably no doubt heard of a company called Fireframe. It's a huge company. <laughs> They're so successful because of what? Because of them essentially serving this critical role of getting data from various different sources and then put it into your warehouse, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: that's kind of its, its main task there. By the same sort of token, the metadata platform has to also be very good at it as well. Because the metadata source is varied. There's multiple sources from very different places you want to make sure you bring them in and also you bring them in in a timely manner as well, right? If the data, and then if your upstream API changed, you want to make sure it doesn't break the whole system as a result of it. Mm -hmm. So the platform at the very bottom of the platform is this injection and then, you know, standardization framework, so to speak. And if you go one layer up is the API, right? Like I said, the API itself has to be able to serve various different use cases that people come up with. So... In order to do that, your API has to be very rich. It cannot be just like, oh, I have a REST API and then and call it a day, right? Because your application might call, you know, yes, REST request response sort of API, but it may want to walk down the graph for graphical API, or maybe it might want to get callback back, right, when something changed, right? So you want to make sure that your API, and of course, at the end of the day, You might even want to run heavy analytical workload on top of the entire metadata as well. So you want to make sure you support all those different variety of API as a system. Once again, that's slightly different from data platform where the standard API is essentially is table view and and, and whatnot. So there's a difference there. And this is where we feel like we really excel as a company compared Mm to other vendors out there, right? Mm -hmm. We basically have the best platform there. We solve all these hard problems from an infrastructure point of view. Mm -hmm. Um, But just that itself is not enough because that still doesn't really solve any actual business use cases. So that is why not only do we provide the best platform, we also provide use case solutions on top of it as well. And then the very first one, like you mentioned before, the biggest one we're trying to focus at this very moment is you know, search and discovery and a bit of data governance as well, where we essentially surface up your data ecosystem to all different parties of interest. There's data engineers who are interested in certain part of the data ecosystem. There's data scientists who are interested in, you know, finding out what kind of data is available out there. And then there's also, you know, business analysts who want to be able to standardize some metrics, make sure they report is consistent and so on and so forth. So there's various different stakeholders all want a piece of action of the data ecosystem. And then that is the application that we provide in order for these people to collaborate effectively.
1: Yeah, thanks for providing the different layers of the architecture that the team conceptualized in order to truly build a robust and satisfactory metadata platform. Just going deeper a bit into the context and the product that you guys has been building. Uh, recently, you wrote this very in-depth post with menorca discussing the what, the why, and the how of a modern metadata platform. And uh, I think as you know, read through it, the article talk about some of the new challenges with metadata management since the introduction of the modern data stack. And then I think later on, the article it. Talk about the key features of a great modern metadata platform. And you kind of mentioned a little bit in your previous answer, Mm -hmm. which included scalability, reliability, extensibility, rich APIs, and ease of integration. Yeah, so would you mind unpacking some of the most relevant takeaways from that article?
2: I sort of jumped the gun and talked about all the deep tech stuff first. So I think that part is probably okay. I don't need to talk too much about it. But I'll take a step back and then maybe answer the why question first, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's, it's not enough to just build cool tax and whatnot, right? There has to be a real compelling reason behind it to build something. So the white part, as you pointed out, if you want to point to a culprit, the culprit is the modern data set, right? Of course, you know, I say it you know, with my tongue in the cheek sort of way, right? So it's essentially, modern data set, of course, helps democratize data to a lot of companies that otherwise used to be kind of just the bread and butter of huge tech companies, right? And now, you know, you can easily, you know, sign up Snowflake, sign up, Five train sign up, you know, DBT and all that. You quickly throw together a data stack, you know, within a very short period of time with minimum amount of money spent. And then you basically have a world-class data stack at that point.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: that all thanks to the modern data stack, right? But one of the biggest pieces around modern data stack is instead of putting all your eggs in one basket, right? The joke is like, everybody used to have only Informatica, everything is in Informatica. But now, of course, every single piece of the stack, you can basically find the best breed vendor. And that vendor will probably just only specialize in that, so mm-hmm. to speak, right? They will be very, very good at that, but that's all they do, right? So you're able to find the best of breed in every vertical and then put them together and then have theoretically the best of breed system as a whole. But then the problem there is, heterogeneity, right? Because now everything is different, right? Sure, some vendor might choose to work with some other vendors, you know, on a certain part of collaboration and whatnot, but that's kind of far and few in between, right? Most of the time, the vendors are very focused on just making their product the best in that area. Yeah. So what you end up with is kind of a mixed match of system. <laughs> and then for most part, it sort of works, right? Yeah, yeah, you can move data from one place to another and get your result at the end. But the place where you start breaking down is actually not so much to do with the tech itself, but to do with company and organization and people,
0: right? Mm-hmm.
2: Because when everything is in one place, there's one system and all that, it's super easy, right? Because the vendor controls everything, so the vendor can surface everything up to you, right? But when that, that's not the case, and you have a bunch of people, right, data citizens who want to actually start trying to work on these things left and right, and, you know, of course, we want to democratize the data to everybody, right? So. When that happens, the collaboration piece and productivity quickly go down, right? And the analogy I like to give here, uh, once again, is think of a time when people are writing code, right? In a company, software engineers writing code without Git or without any version control system. How does that even work, right? Do I email you my patch and you patch it to your local version, right? And how do we keep change history in that sense, right? That is a terrible place to be, right? And then you cannot have the size of Google, Microsoft, right? With, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 engineers working together on things, right? If you do not have a way of collaborate effectively. Mm -hmm. And I think data is kind of in that phase right now, right? Yes, you have the best of tools, right? Okay, sure. You know, Snowflake is super cool. You can scale it to whatever level you want, right? But that's just you as an individual, right? When you try to collaborate with other people, there's literally no good tool out there that help you to do that. And then we actually fall back to the same, you know, I email you my patch sort of scenario, right? Where people just essentially ping other people on Slack, and hey, hey, what's up with this thing, right? Do you remember this? I said, oh, maybe not, but you can talk to Fred. Fred worked on this three months ago, right? And then you go to Fred and Fred like, oh, I don't know, I didn't work on it, but you know, someone else might have some idea, right? Or well, you know, people just put bits and pieces somewhere, right? Okay, maybe I, I create a text file. I'm pretty sure a lot of data scientists and business analysts can relate to that. They have plenty of SQL file lying somewhere in their, on their computer where they have snippet of SQL, right? And every time you just have to go back and copy and paste that and then reapply it somewhere. That is not collaboration, right? That, that is why, you know, the modern data stack didn't help is um, making sure that you're actually providing a great experience for people and then a productive environment where people can collaborate. Mm -hmm. And the reason behind, like I said, this is, you need essentially a tool that is essentially cross-cutting, that talks to everybody, that works with everybody in order to bring up that unified view to people.
1: Yeah, I think you had mentioned, right, pretty early that the modern metadata platform can help integrate, process, and serve rich metadata at a scale to tackle the many complex organizational data challenges. So I think just bring up that part about, you know, the organizational problem less so about the technical problem, right? And I think even earlier, the early blog post introducing, you know, this concept of the modern metadata platform, it's really served as a way to provide a modern data experience, you know, to all stakeholders over, you know, this fragmentation in the data ecosystem that you just mentioned with the modern data stack. Now, I think it's pretty important to talk about the role that Metaphor as a company also and as a product play within this data stack concept that obviously has been really over the place within the data community. But I think that based on observation, the key strategy of Metaphore's product roadmap is to closely integrate with some other tools that form the core modern data stack. For instance, recently, we partnered with Soda Data to to tackle the quality and observability problems. Taking a look at the high-level bird-eye of view, how do you see the Metaphor platform fits in the broader data tooling ecosystem?
2: Yeah, so on the one hand, I think... Absolutely, it's incumbent upon us to make sure that we have a lot of good integration out of the box with the most popular options out there, right? Mm-hmm. Of course, there's gonna be a, a Snowflake integration. Of course, there's gonna be a BigQuery integration. Of course, there's gonna be Airflow, you know, the lake and all these common things that everybody uses, it's a no brainer. But then there will always be, first of all, there will always be sort of the not so popular vendor that people are using, right? Mm-hmm. You cannot turn around to them and tell them, hey, look, just because you're using system XYZ, sorry, you're out of luck. You cannot use this, us, right? And then they will always also, especially this is certainly true in bigger enterprises where there will be proprietary systems, right? They'll build their own system of, you know, serve XYZ purposes. You cannot tell them, hey, sorry, we don't support that. I mean, you're out of luck there. Like I mentioned previously, aim of the platform is to integrate with all these systems and bring them up to give you the complete pictures of your data ecosystem, right? So the complete means complete, right? You cannot have missing holes here and there. To us, it's also equally important to provide essentially the easiest way to integrate with our platform, right? Mm-hmm. It should be as easy as someone who can just spend like a couple of hours top and then the metadata is in the system already. Right? And that is, in my opinion, is to some extent, even more important than the out-of-box integration, right? Because if you apply the same thing, if it's easy to build integration, then it's easy to build out-of-box integration. <laughs> so our collaboration with Soda was kind of in that vein as well, right? You know, when we work with them, they say, hey, look, we have already integrated with a couple other data catalogs. We integrate with Solution Calibra and all that, right? We know how that works, yeah. We can work with you and get it done in some time, right? But then afterwards, this is literally the word they told us, right? They told us, oh my God, you guys, it's so easy to integrate with you guys. Like, it makes everything else look bad. Like, they didn't expect it to be so easy to integrate, right? And then, you know, there's a lot of details into why that is the case, but you can probably take my word for it now. <laughs> like, we make sure that we spend a lot of effort think through this entire process to make sure that mm. it is super easy for someone else to integrate with us. And not just a one-off effort, right? It's on an ongoing basis as well. Because, you know, what if IPI changes? What if something evolves? And all that you want to make sure that the integration can keep evolving with basically minimum amount of effort maintaining
1: it. I see. I think that's probably related to your earlier point about having like the rich API as part of platform recognizing and I think you know having these options to play around with API integration is probably a big factor in ease in of e- 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 integration as well. So I guess like now, I suppose like based on your answer, really the positioning that metaphor have, for you know, with respect to you know, partnership with other. Vendor is really like that selling point in terms of it's so easy to integrate us, like it's much better for you to partner and collaborate. And so that's a very low hanging fruit that both of us can benefit,
2: right? Yeah, actually it goes both ways, right? It's easy for them to bring their metadata into the system, but it's also easy for them to take metadata out of the system as well, right? Metadata from other system, right? For example, think of it, if you really want end-to-end lineage, right? Your lineage starting from your, you know, your Salesforce and all the way through 5Prim through Data Lake, Data Warehouse, your dashboard, whatever. right? If you want to get that entire chain, there's only one place you can get it, which is from this platform, right? Everybody will have to contribute a little bit of that lineage into the system. But once they all contribute that, everything's linked up. And then there's only one place to get it, which is the central platform. Right? So to them, it's, it's also equal benefit, right? Because they give something, they take something as well. Right? And then they know this is kind of a, more of an ecosystem rather than, oh, you know, some vendor that's just taking everybody's data and that's it. No, it, it actually works both ways. That's why people are interested in collaborating with us.
1: Yeah, it's really about like creating like win-wins, you know, partnerships. Exactly. For everyone. Yeah. Let's take up your engineering head and put on your founder hat. Finding early adopters is notoriously challenging for any enterprise product. What was some of the challenge that your team had to overcome to cross that chasm?
2: Yeah, any early stage startup is going to face the same problem as well. I think for us, even a little bit more challenging than your traditional enterprise software, because you can kind of break them into two groups. right? One is, hey, this is obviously sort of product-led growth. You can start from the grassroots sort of thing. Right? For example, dbt will be a good example, right? Well, if you have one-person team, you can use dbt happily, and you can find a lot of value in it. Of course, you can find more value when you have 10-person team, right? And you know, some of the other products are similar, right? Five train, right? You know, if you only have one API, that's okay. I can just pull that API, right? And if I only have a little bit of data, I only pay whatever I have there. So you get value no matter where you are in the spectrums. And obviously the bigger the company generally you get, the more value you get, so to speak. And for something like a metadata platform and you know, and data catalogs, right, you kind of need to have a certain amount of people in order to make it useful, so to speak. You know, if you're a one person team, probably you don't need a data catalog. That's the reality of it, right? If you have a three person data team, maybe, maybe not, right? But as soon as you start hitting some critical mass, then this becomes super important, right? And of course, if you are talking about big enterprises, there's no brainer, it's a mass out there, right? Big en- Every big enterprises have a problem like that. They need to solve. yesterday. So for us, it's about finding the right company at the right time, right? Mm-hmm. You know, when we talk to, for example, Bank of America, you know, or Chase, and yeah, of course they have a problem like this, right? But are they going to work with a one-year-old company, right? Probably not, right? That's the reality of it, right? You have to really work with them maybe for a year or maybe even two years in order to really score that contract. That is not the position that most early-stage companies want to be. They want to be able to scale very quickly, even yeah. early on. So as a result of that, it's about finding those companies who are not so big that obviously, yes, they have the problem, but they also have the red tapes. Right? And then at the same time, they find value and are able to get onto the system very quickly. So that's kind of the main challenge we have in terms of finding those customers is find a sweet spot where the company is small enough and nimble enough that start having this problem and willing to try, you know, at least a startup as a vendor solutions.
1: I see. I guess just a double click on that. What are some of the channels that have been most effective for your team to extract out like this you know, ideal customer profile that can be good like how customers for metaphor?
2: Yeah, we're still exploring, to be honest. We don't have the answers to all that, but we do feel like, you know, content is an interesting channel, right? Because ultimately what we see the trend, even in big enterprises nowadays, is that a lot of these sort of decisions to buy tools, especially data-related tools, it's being delegated to you know, people on the ground, so to speak, right? It's no longer your traditional enterprise sales model where you have to go and wine and dine with the CISO or play golf with them in order to score those contracts, right? And then they have no clue what they bought just now, right? They want to make sure that this tool is actually ultimately useful for the people who are using it. And in order to do that, they essentially delegate that responsibility to you know, practitioners and or data leaders and whatnot, right? And these people, they may be actively looking for solutions, But more frequently, they are actively exposing themselves to, you know, podcasts like yours or, you know, blog posts out there where they can equip themselves with more knowledge about what's available out there to help them uh, improve themselves and their team, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why we feel like they're still kind of like product-led growth in a sense, but, you know, maybe targeting not just the pure data scientists or analysts, but maybe one level or two level up where those people have some decision power about the tools. Mm. Um, but then at the same time, they're not so far away from the actual work that they don't know what the actual people need and all that. So trying to reach those people through content seems to be somewhat effective, as far as you can tell so far, but is it a better way to reach them? Maybe. We're still exploring.
1: <laughs> For sure. That's from a personal point of view. I guess another angle, I'm just curious to learn more about you know your go-to-market motion, which is the industry. Was there any specific industry domain that you put a bit more attention into? Yeah.
2: So data is one of those things. I don't think it discriminates from domain to domain. Pretty much every domain needs data one way or the other, right? It's the lifeblood of business. So yeah. unless we're not doing business, if it's a number of maybe then it doesn't matter to you that much, right? But there is obviously certain industries are more open to adopting solution at the earlier stage than the other, right? Some industry obviously is very risk averse, right? You know, finance and insurance and all these industries tend to be more risk averse, so they will not take on unproven solutions, so to speak, very easily. Right? And things like, you know, probably like e-commerce and, you know, some tech-oriented companies, right, not pure tech tech, but, you know, tech-powered companies, they tend to be a little bit more forward-thinking and they tend to have a bigger data team as well where mm-hmm. these problems tend to surface. So those industries tend to have more interest in a solution like this. Obviously, tech is another place where this is obviously very sought after. But then beyond that, I think probably those tech-powered uh, company startup that's trying to disrupt traditional industry tend to be one of the ideal customers for us.
1: I see, yeah. I think it's much easier as a startup to sell to another startup because they have the same, I guess, mentality of like you know moving fast and experimenting with new things,
2: right? Yeah, as long as you can bring value to them, right? They're not afraid of trying new things, right? Their company, they certainly much bigger company where they feel like, oh, there is value, but I don't know if I want to try new things. I'd rather stay with whatever I know, even if it's less efficient or you know whatnot. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Hiring is another critical responsibility of any early stage startup founder. What valuable lesson have you learned to attract the right people who are excited about the mission? The metaphor.
2: I'll put a plug in there. We're hiring, <laughs> so talk to me. Contact me if you're interested in this field. But I think. Especially for early stage startup, right? It's not really built for everyone, to be honest. Um, you kind of have to have the right set of mentality to work in early stage startup, right? That generally translates into, okay, you have to be a little bit scrappy, right? You have to be able to deal with the fast pace and you have to be able to put on multiple hats. Those are some of the characteristics that are more unique to you know early stage startup than, than later stage startup. So what we found out is you know, it's not about just hiring people for hiring people's sake. You kind of have to hire the right kind of people. So they actually thrive in this environment. And for better or for worse, people who work in big company for many years tend to be a little bit less suitable, right? I mean, obviously, this is extremely biased, I think. But there's some truth to it, right? If you're very used to the pace of big companies, joining a startup can be kind of a cultural shock in that sense, right? Mm -hmm. And what we found out is generally people who sort of dabble in startup frequently tend to perform better in startup as well. Or people who, you know, in the middle of their career where they have already learned a lot from established companies but want to take on brand new challenges, a completely different kind of challenges, are the ones that sort of more suited for this stage of the company. But at the same time, you know, this is the most exciting stage of the company, in my opinion. You do build stuff from zero to one. You know, you do scale things that you have never seen before. And then also, if the company is on a successful path, it will probably be, uh, the growth is phenomenal. And it will be something that you will never be able to see in in a big company, right? Mm -hmm. So those are the things that interest you or feel appealing to you. And I think joining at least a startup such as ours will be a good choice.
1: I see. They want to we try to identify out of this attribute of this potential employer is that comfort with growth, right? Comfort in taking a risk and jumping on a new movement, new changes. From what you said, the best indicator for that is the past experience, doubling with similar side or like like a startup in general.
2: Well, not necessarily have to join a startup, right? Someone who has always had this side hustle, you know, Mm -hmm. side projects and all that. That, Those are good indicators in my opinion, right? Because that means people are trying to get out of their comfort zone right? mm-hmm. or, or trying okay. to do something different from the day-to-day job and all that. Those tend to be the people who have that urge to really push themselves and grow in all sorts of different direction. Right? Mm-hmm. Those are good characteristics for a stage startup.
1: And I guess another point related really to hiring is just culture. So I mean like team building at this stage is very important because like, you, I mean, as a father, you set the culture norms and, that norms go down to every single person within the organization and the earlier the station company, the more important is, what have been some of the things that you and your founding team been thinking about in making sure that Metafor has a good culture norms for your employees?
2: Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. I think as an early stage startup founder, right, a lot of time, you know, you're trying to put out fires, right, left and right, right? Okay, you're trying to build product as quickly as possible, trying to bring it to the customer as quickly as possible, trying to build a team as quickly as possible. But you're absolutely right, right? If, if that's all your focus and attention, and then you say, hey, that's, don't worry about it. Let's just try to hit product market fit. Let's just try to get to you know, 1 million AR as quickly as possible, and then worry about culture later. That is a huge mistake, and most of the time it won't work. Because culture is one of those things, if you don't grow it and then just let it grow, on, it's almost like weed, right? And it will just grow everywhere. And then by the time it's already too late to correct it. You're absolutely right. The first 10 people, 20 people that you hire, you essentially determine the culture value of the entire company for the rest of the lifespan of the company. So that is why it's, it's critical to strike a balance, right? You want to make sure, yes, you're being tactical, you're practical, you're building product, you know, you're trying to get things off the ground as quickly as possible. But also spend a good amount of time to think about what kind of company you're trying to build and what kind of culture you're trying to instill. And then fortunate enough to have Purdue, who's a great manager and who's someone who have you know thought a lot of that in this area. So the two of us, we have spent outsized amount of time making sure that the company has a good culture and value. And then it's one of those things that it's not that you set it down, write it in some wiki page and then say, oh, okay, that's it. Right. It's something that you have to actually practice in real life as well. You have to keep reminding people, you know, keep you know iterating on what's important to the company and whatnot. And also, especially when time is tough, right, which you have plenty as a startup. It's a roller coaster ride. Right? There'll be a good day. There'll be plenty of bad days as well. Right? When you're faced with very difficult decisions, right, we always go back to those values and culture and say, hey, look, are we doing it based on what we believe this we should be doing? Right? And then almost always you find your answer there. Mm-hmm. And every company is going to have a different thing, but if you stick to it, then you end up growing a company that you wanted to grow. That's kind of it. In my opinion, once again, setting it up, you know, making sure you follow it through, keep repeating it over and over again, and actually use it as a guiding post for your most critical, important decisions is yeah. what's going to really shape your culture. And then hopefully, if everything else works out well, then you have a company that you want rather than a company that you cannot recognize. Right? So.
1: I see. Yeah, thanks for... Providing the thought thinking patterns behind setting up culture. And you know, eventually, I think, like what you said, culture is what you do, not just what you say. Over communicate these values to the employees. They repeat it over and over again. Go help. That ethos can serve us like the North Star whenever you have to make a decision, however tough decision might be. Yeah. Finally, Metaphor is backed by top tier venture capital firms such as A6Z and, and Amplify Partners, along with numerous other data science and data engineering luminaries. What fundraising advice could you give to fathers who want to seek the right investors for the startups?
2: Picking an investor is super critical, right? It's one of those things that if you pick an average investor, you're probably okay. But if you pick a very bad investor, you're going to have a very bad time. And we are very lucky that we have top-notch investors, and then that makes our life so much easier. That being said, I think one advice that we received during our fundraising which we found super useful we would love to pass it on to other our fellow founders is to make sure that you have you run an actual process right? because you know these investment vcs and investment firms and whatnot they'll come to you you know out of the blue right it will not be like a time that you set right so you meet some of them early you miss them late but you wanna make sure that you run an actual process. So you give everybody sort of the equal chance, right? And then evaluate them fairly and squarely, right? Don't just take on the first offer that comes in, right? Just make sure that you tell everybody the same thing. Hey, look, you know, we will do one week, two week, however long road show, And then at the end of it, we'll make a decision. Right? And that way you have all the data points, right? And then try to talk to those people, obviously, and try to get as much data points as possible. But you have all the data points in one place at one time. Where you can make an educated decision, but the reality of it is actually if you go with a top tier VC firm, me generally you can't go wrong with that. So that's kind of the reality of it. Yeah.
1: I mean, obviously, agency and Amplify Partners are very big brands that have support various category-defining data infrastructure and analytics company, right? And I'm sure that you know there's a lot of lesson and wisdom that maybe the right word being pass along from the investors at those firm into metaphor. And I'm sure that's been really helpful for your team to solve some of the challenges with product and go to market as you continue this journey. Right?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We really enjoy working with them. And, and like you said, they've seen a lot of things. One of the biggest thing that they were able to help us is to make sure that we don't repeat mistake that they've seen before, right? That alone itself is super valuable, right? The joke that we often talk about is the company that succeeded at stage startup are the one that make the fewest mistake. And not the one that make the right decision is just make sure you make as little, as few mistakes as possible. And then being able to get those wisdom from people who being in the field that sing a lot is super helpful.
1: Perfect. Mars, at this point our conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment in which I'm going ask you three rapid fire questions and I can give quick answers for the listeners. Number one, Name three people in the borrow data communities whose work you admire.
0: Yeah. So we are a
2: big fan of Ben Stencil from Mode his writing has always been a joy to read and very, very insightful. Tristan Handy, DBT Lab, obviously he created this entire category and, you know, he's run a very, very great company there as well. So a huge fan of his work too. The last one is not necessarily a sort of industry person. This is Andy Pavlo. He's a professor at CMU who teaches database mostly, but data in in general. Really enjoy classes he share online and all that. He's a great professor. I wish all, every single professor I have was as good as him and I'm sure I'll get much better grades if that were the case. <laughs>
1: Thank you. Number two, name one book that you could recommend for people to cultivate a better engineering method.
2: So I actually have two recommendations here, and then they serve different, almost like two different extremes. Not so much on the engineering best practices, but engineering mindset. The first book is A Thousand Brands by Jeff Hawkins. Uh, He's the founder of Palm Inc. And this one is super important in my opinion, in the sense that it talks about how human intelligence works in a huge way, and then compare that against AI, right? AI as we know it today. And I think this is one of those books, probably, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years down the track, when people read back and say, wow, this is a critical work that turns the entire AI industry into a different direction. Highly recommend if you're interested in AI ML. And then the second one is not necessarily engineering per se. It's called Scout Mindset by Julia Galef. This is a great book. She talks about Essentially, a mix of many things—you know, growth mindset, how to take value, and all that. I think it's a generally very, very applicable, whether you're an engineer or not. But I think for engineering, especially, I think a lot of people will probably find that book to be super helpful.
1: Yeah, I definitely plus one to that point. I read, Scam I said last year. I think it's really about not holding on to your certain beliefs and really be open-minded to new ideas and challenge your own opinion and making sure that how can you constantly test that whether your belief is correct or not? How do you constantly like validate and prove that you are wrong so you can make few mistake? And I think in the context of startup, that's like 95% of the decisions you have to make is based on uncertainty, right? And you, you really need to adapt to your thinking, given new information. So I think, yeah, thanks for sharing that recommendation. Finally, imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all the early stage data practitioners on Twitter. What could you tweet about?
2: This is one interesting thing, I think every good thing or every successful companies or projects or anything like that almost always hinge on striking a good balance. Right, If you take extreme, it will always fail almost either way. Too much of something, too little or something will always fail. It's always about how do you balance things in, in the middle. And data engineering is no exception to that as well. And I'll give a data engineering specific context to that as well. Right, On the one hand, data engineer sort of task to build a system or maintain a system that completely democratize your data ecosystem to everybody, right? You want to make everybody self-serve and just go on their own, so to speak, right? And on the other hand, the traditional way of thinking is oh, no, 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 that's crazy. Right? We want to control everything, right? We want Everything needs to be highly governed, right? Nobody's, you know, I cannot trust anybody to do anything right other than us. Right? Either those extreme will fail, I can tell you, right? You know go without saying the complete government means you know coming govern angle means that everything will be essentially you'll lose all the productivity that you can have right but complete democratization that just means uncontrolled organic growth, and then that's also not something you want so strike a balance between the two make sure that you allow people to help themselves right in a way that you put in enough guardrails so they don't drive off the cliff on their own right? so the, I think data engineer that is. Such a critical role that they play a unique role they play in the data ecosystem they really need to know how to do this well in order to excel
0: yeah i think that's
1: a brilliant way to to end our conversation just you know striking the balance between these different extremes governance and democratization the main thesis that your team at metaphor has been working on really hard to push so mars i really enjoy our conversation today talking about your educational background back in new zealand your PhD at UCLA doing research that bringing computer science to healthcare. your internship experience at Google, your time leading the metadata infrastructure team at LinkedIn and working on the open source data, your current journey with Metaphor, the concept of the modern metadata platform, as well as some of the relevant partnership, hiring, go-to-market and fundraising advice that have been given throughout the conversation. And I'm sure that a lot of people will find these stories and insights to be useful. Be sure to include everything on the show notes so listeners can have a chance to take a look, follow up, and dive deeper onto some of the great work that Metaphor is currently working on. Definitely recommend them checking out on the opening as well. So yeah, Mars, I really enjoyed our conversation today and I hope you have a great rest of your day.
2: guys! thanks for having me. And once again, this is super enjoyable. Thanks.
0: Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.